Hello and welcome back to the Armchair F1 podcast. And what a month it has been. Max Verstappen crowned a double world champion. Sergio Perez taking another victory out in Singapore before Verstappen going on to win the next two races, seeing himself crowned the winner of the world championship in Suzuka. In rather controversial circumstances, we must say. We, of course, since our last episodes, we have been racing in Singapore, in Japan, in Austin, Texas. There is so much for us to cover. Um, it's been a pretty crazy month myself, settling in to City University as well. And I guess whilst we're here mentioning City University, today's episode is taking place within the studios of City University. We are using, I don't know if you can notice maybe that the sound is a little bit different this week, but we are very much making use of the facilities here, trying something new with the podcast and we might as well. Max Verstappen is a double world champion. It's something for us to talk about. There's plenty more we're going to be going on about today. Um, plenty of off-track discussion. We've got more about next year's driver lineups, more of an idea of what the season's going to look like. Plus, as well, we have had, on the day we're recording this episode, we have had the result of the FIA's investigation into Red Bull's breaches of the cost cap. And it's fair to say this has, like most things in the modern world of F1, divided quite a lot of opinion. So stick around. We're going to be looking at everything in the last month from October here on the Armchair F1 podcast. As ever, if you've listened to episodes of the podcast, you you know the drill by now. You can follow us across social media at Armchair F1 Pod. You can listen to the podcast across all major streaming platforms as well. Well, let's get straight into it. Max Verstappen, a double world champion, victorious in the Japanese Grand Prix, taking his second world title. There's been, again, there's quite a bit of controversy over the circumstances in which he might have won that second title. And we'll be talking about them in a little bit. But there's been no doubt throughout all of our coverage of the season, Verstappen has been head and shoulders above the rest of the field. And in many ways, this second title was, well, it was a long time coming. And let's get into that. I've got two guests to talk with me through that today. Starting off in the literally... For the first time ever recording a podcast, I have a guest literally in the room right next door to me through the looking glass into the radio studio, Sam Matthews Bomer. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Cam. It's good to see you through the glass. It's, it's nice, isn't it? This is sort of, you know, you get those um, podcast setups where they have the presenters all around the table with the microphones, all the different microphones coming up, everyone talking in like it's one nice little kind of community. And we sort of have that. We have some glass between us, but we can make that work. We certainly can. We certainly can. feels quite odd for me to be sat doing a podcast where I'm not sat in front of a Zoom screen mm. or just with a singular phone in front of me. I've actually got a proper microphone here, which is feels quite odd, but I'm sure, I'm sure I'll get re- used to it across the year. Personally, I really, really like it. Just actually, it's nice to actually kind of do a recording in a studio, enjoy enjoying the facilities that i've got as well and maybe you know having a microphone that i'm not trying to spend ages trying to work out how to make work um 
as ever, of course, it's not just Sam joining us today. We also have Joe Spagnoli, who might himself be able to join us in the City University studios if his move to London comes through in the next couple of weeks. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad to be a memory of the past, the old podcasting setup, still in my room, <laughs> still on the Blue Yeti, hearing you guys brag about your lavish metropolitan facilities. Aside from that, just great camp. Do you know what? It's, it's nice, to, it's nice to, I think, to just try something new, try this all out, and most importantly as well, in the field of innovation, this is a year, of course, where Formula One has innovated massively, and this podcast has to innovate with that. So in that mantra, here we are. Anyway, let's get back to, um, before we start to sound like an advert, let's get back to actually talking about the Formula One, the main reason we are here today. Um, obviously, as we mentioned, the top line, Max Verstappen, a double world champion. Uh, we can go into each race a little bit more and just... Again, talk about maybe the fact that for Verstappen, he didn't quite make it easy for himself, certainly in Singapore. Um, perhaps the only error-strewn race, you could argue, for Verstappen all season. A difficult qualifying, seeing him come in eighth before he was struggling to make his way through the field throughout the race. Uncharacteristic mis- mistakes from Max Verstappen, eventually seeing him finish in seventh place, his teammate Sergio Perez going on to take the victory in some very wet conditions as well in Singapore. There was some doubt as to whether the race would be able to take place given how wet it was at the start. But eventually after, controversially perhaps, the full starts procedure went through, we managed to run a 59-lap race, which saw Perez take his second victory of the season. But Verstappen, of course, didn't have to wait long to win his second world title. He took it next time out in Japan in, again, another very wet race there. But Verstappen leading from the front, peerless, I think is the only way you can describe his performance in Japan, eventually going into a position where he finished 27 seconds ahead of his teammate Sergio Perez with just 28 laps of racing, a dominant drive from Verstappen before winning out again last time. His team nearly throwing it away for him in Austin, but Verstappen coming through and taking the victory there. Um, Joe, let's start off with you. I mean, we've been tracking Max Verstappen all season, but there is absolutely no doubt just how successful the season this has been for him. And in so many ways, rightfully a double world champion. He has single-handedly tricked everybody into thinking that the Red Bull RB18 is a dominant car. It demonstrably isn't. I've said this a million times before. The first half of the season, it wasn't even the fastest car on the grid in super times. And yet, it's won 15 of 19 races, 13 of which with Max Verstappen behind the wheel. He's one off breaking, what is it, Sebastian Vettel's record of most wins in a season, 13. I, 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 think, they, I think he's equal with that now. He's, he's, he's equal with that, but if he wins... Uh, oh, if he wins, yes, he will go. He yeah, will he will break Vettel. that record. Yes. That car is now one of the top 10 most dominant in terms of percentages, win percentages in F1 history. And it's nowhere near as far ahead of the competition as any of the other cars on that list. That's just Max Verstappen. He's won all but two of the races that that car has won this year. It's insane that the imbalance between him and Sergio Perez, but Perez has had a good season. Verstappen has just been on a complete other level and... I mean, for as, for as much as I want to blame Ferrari on throwing it all away, he is the only deserving world champion on the grid this year. I think it's very difficult to disagree with that. And, you know, we've been saying all year, can Verstappen take it up another level from what he did 
in 2021. And very clearly, he has done that. Sam, I mean, obviously, as a Verstappen fan, it's, I guess, for yourself, a little bit of personal happiness seeing Verstappen going on, taking his second title. But, you know, for everything this season, the fact that we came out of testing knowing Verstappen had a, a good car under his feet, but we didn't quite know whether he would be able to potentially beat Ferrari, who seemed to have the quicker package at the time. We knew there were the reliability issues with the Red Bull powertrains that certainly with two retirements in the first three races, we all thought the season was over already, that Leclerc was going to romp his way to his first world title. But, you know, Verstappen, through an almost peerless dominance, has gone and taken a second title and taken it with absolute ease. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you were mentioning the start of the season there, and I don't think the start of the season could have gone any worse for Red Bull. I mean, Verstappen obviously had the DNF in the first race in um, Bahrain, I think it was, and ever since then it's started to go downhill. Leclerc was miles ahead after the first few races, and people were wondering whether Red Bull were going to be able to catch up, obviously. Ferrari have had their issues since then with their strategy and occasionally their reliability. But I think it has, as Joe was mentioning, I was basking in his his praise of Verstappen because he has just been peerless. You cannot deny that. I mean, he's. I think we mentioned in the last podcast how he's taken his unbelievable performance from last year and winning last year seems to have added that kind of level of maturity to his performance that that just makes him head and shoulders above every single other driver on the grid. And as like after three or four or five races, it just became a inevitability, and that's how it's panned out. Well, I think there's absolutely no other way of putting it. Max Verstappen, who you know already, we've still got three races left to run this season. Could you know? beat the record for the most points in one season. He could still get the record for the most wins in run season. And all of that with a car that, as Joe was mentioning there, wasn't the fastest car on outright pace, certainly at the start of the season. And, you know, arguably you go into, we go into many, many qualifying sessions and we all still put a bet on Charles Leclerc to take pole position in a lot of them. So for Verstappen, it has been really just that dominance in the races and just the way that Red Bull have got their strategic calls right so many times this season. And we can sit here once again and, you know, tear the Ferrari strategists apart. But I think without doubt, Sam, it's one of those things that with Verstappen, you just have to sit back and admire just that every call that he could have got right this year, apart from the occasional mistake and maybe one bad race, he's got it right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the race in Austin was kind of uh, almost symbolised Verstappen's performance this season because even when the Red Bull pit team messed up that pit stop slightly and placed him behind Hamilton on the track, even then when he was however many seconds behind, his victory still kind of seemed an seemed a inevitability, which might not necessarily have been the case for any other driver on the grid. And you knew that he was going to rein in Hamilton and eventually overtake him. And I mean, the Mercedes car is obviously worse, but Hamilton is still heralded by many as the best driver of all time. So the fact that Verstappen overtook him so easily kind of just showed just how good he's been this season and just how he's been on another level to anyone else. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people saying as well, could Verstappen 
go on to be I know we have this debate about the greatest of all time so many times because that seems to be a very popular thing in sport but in something like Formula One we always said you know it would take a great driver to beat Michael Schumacher's statistics it would it will take a brilliant driver to beat Lewis Hamilton's statistics it may take an exceptional driver to beat Max Verstappen's potential statistics and I say potential because the rates of victories the rates he's picking up points there are many records that Verstappen could go on to break in his career and that is it's exciting to see maybe just where he could go with that um Joe I want to come back to you now because um we've spoken a bit about obviously the last few races and for Verstappen obviously he had the chance to win the title in Singapore not his best performance I think it's fair to say one where we saw some uncharacteristic mistakes creep into his performances there. But after that, Japan, I would go to say, I mean, Verstappen's had some great performances all year, but it would be maybe difficult to argue, I would say, with just how good and just how far ahead Verstappen was in those really tricky conditions at Suzuka, where, you know, again, like with Singapore, it felt, you know, that we may not have even got a race that time just how bad the conditions were throughout a lot of that period and again in austin a rare error i think we have to add in 2022 from red bull with the strategy but one that verstappen again overtaking lewis hamilton taking that victory in the end it's hard to look anything but just how good verstappen has been the scariest thing of all, Cam, is that I don't think either of those races are in Max Verstappen's top five wins this year in terms of individual merits. And yet in both of them, he outclassed seemingly everyone in machinery that even came close to him, never mind competitive. I mean, Japan, I didn't watch the race live, but throughout watching the highlights extended periods back, you don't notice Max Verstappen because there's just no one in the field that is even approaching relevant to just how far ahead he was of literally everyone else. And in Austin, as you say, he did it the hard way. The things that are not supposed to happen, happened. Red Bull, even without that disastrous uh, front-left tyre change in the pit stop, they would have lost the lead to Hamilton anyway. James Voles and Mercedes had out-strategized them. But you know, even with that and the 12-second somewhere in that region handicap and having to fight through Charles Leclerc in the process, Max never really looked deterred. I don't think anyone anyone of sound mind would have put money on anyone else but Max Verstappen winning that race, entering the final 20 laps. And sure enough, he delivered. It's getting to the point now where Max Verstappen winning a race in great fashion isn't even news. Yeah, that exactly. There's nothing really new about it. It's just that he is something you come to expect after a while. It's almost like the fact that I don't know how in any way could Verstappen beat some of his performances. I don't know. Maybe he needs to do a last to first every week but based upon what we saw at Spa let's face it he'd probably win that um I guess there is only really one more question to ask because we've talked about Verstappen's dominance so much throughout the season and I guess you've always got it it's getting harder to find that new angle to talk about it so I guess I'll I'll guess I'll finish off with this just how far do we think Max Verstappen could go maybe not just even this season but looking into future seasons as well are we witnessing now someone who could potentially break every statistical record under the sun what are we thinking joe i'll come to you first championships is a tricky one because a lot of it comes down to having 
the right car underneath you, although I do have a lot of faith in Red Bull. But if hypothetically they were to drop off the top of the performance curve, Verstappen's contract is so long and so huge that it would be very difficult logistically to get him to the new hypothetical dominant team. So championships, I'm a little bit hazy. But in terms of race wins, I mean, by this age, there are barely... I don't know if there's any other F1 driver but at this age who'd won as many races as him. So I, I can't I can't think I of saw one. the stat Sebastian recently. Vettel, and so Sebastian Vettel perhaps, certainly, but Vettel possibly. Vettel possibly. But again, I, I had the stat recently and I apologize that I can't quote it verbatim. But his career progression at his age versus basically anyone else in the history of this sport is like five years advanced, if not more. In terms of yeah, we, we've heard about the rumours that he may not race much beyond his current contract. He may retire from F1 at the age of 32, 33. Even with that and a slight decrease in car performance, he's still well on course to beat Lewis Hamilton's win total, especially if Mercedes don't get their act together next year. So, yeah, if you're fans of any other driver, I would be very concerned. Sam, anything to add for you or just happiness? Um, absolute happiness, Cam. <laughs> Exulting in it. Um, as I said before, I mean, I've watched his career progression and I remember sitting on the sofa, it was one of the few races that Channel 4 had on, I think, when he won his first Grand Prix in his very first race in a Red Bull car. And ever since that moment, I remember he was, I was in school at that point and ever since I've followed him closely. He's what got me into F1. So his continued success and progression and brilliance, there's nothing I love more. Well, we're going to move on. We've got to talk about some of the other drivers on the grid. Look ahead to news off the track as well. That's all still coming up here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Okay, let's move away now from Max Verstappen. We've done a lot of talking about Max Verstappen. Let's talk about some of the other drivers on the grid. And I want to start off with Sergio Perez. Um, And I guess I've got a question to start off with. Joe, I'll put this to you. Will the real Sergio Perez stand up? Very good on street circuits, it seems. Not so much, perhaps, on the permanent tracks in the middle of the season, but his performance at Singapore, I mean, a lot of people have rated it amongst one of his best in his Formula One career. And, you know, a very good drive from Perez, despite the controversies over his penalty, over the lengths, of course, um, at which he was trailing behind the safety car, leaving more than 10 car lengths. Yes, he got a penalty, but still managed to hold on to his victory. And I think impressively in Singapore, knowing that there was the risk of a penalty, made sure he gave himself that gap once the penalty was applied. A very good drive from Sergio Perez, which begs the question, where was he during the middle of the season? He was doing exactly what his contract and, I suspect, stern words from Jos Verstappen and Christian Horner were telling him to, be a number two driver on call whenever you're needed. It's really weird that the profile of Sergio Perez's strengths and weaknesses have changed so much in the last couple of years, but you can't take anything away from how he performed in Singapore. Those last 20 laps, I was thinking in terms of the tyres, the cars, the gap between them, I could have been convinced that Leclerc would be on on his gearbox for the entire final phase of the race. But in the end, it was actually a very Verstappen-like performance, just quietly disappearing into the distance, never really appearing pressured. 
Yeah, he's the street he's the street track master now. Even when Max Verstappen makes a few fairly innocuous mistakes, Sergio Perez is there to pick up the pieces. First Monaco, now um, now Singapore as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those ones I think that's so interesting with Perez because we talk about him as a street track maestro. And we've seen, you know, his best performances arguably being in Monaco, Baku, Singapore, also the three tracks he's won races in in the last two years, which I don't think there's any irony there at all. And, you know, the question is, I guess, Sam, that I think Perez is certainly the most secure Red Bull number two we've had in the last few years, certainly since Daniel Ricciardo. Do you think he can get second in the world championship this year? Because obviously, do you think that's something that Red Bull are expecting him to get now? finish ahead of, of Charles Leclerc. Do you think they would accept him? Perhaps maybe finishing a little bit behind Leclerc, but putting in the performances that he has, particularly in the last few races? Well, Cam, I think, to be honest, I don't think Red Bull really care where Perez finishes now. They've won the Constructors' Championship. That's ultimately what they need to do every single season, and they've done it. I mean, he's two points behind Leclerc. It would be a welcome kind of add-on if he did go on to finish second especially if you think about where and how far Ferrari were ahead at the start of the year but um, I think whether or not he finishes second or third doesn't matter to Red Bull a huge amount but I think obviously personally Perez would love that I mean Leclerc many people have been saying that he's the second best driver on the grid this season and if Perez could then overhaul him that would be undeniably be a great achievement but, yeah, I think it's down to Perez to prove that to himself, if anything. Mm, certainly. Well, let's look at another driver in the battle for second. I saw Formula 1, as soon as Verstappen won the title, started putting out these battle for second graphics, like everyone cares about them, like it's the championship fight, almost. And I don't think they were winning anyone round with that. But let's go on to Charles Leclerc now. Um, Joe, obviously, as a, it's not been a great year for Ferrari and for Charles Leclerc, it's been one that has had some very good highs, but equally some lows as well. Um, I mean, my first question, actually, do you think that Singapore was a missed opportunity for Leclerc and for Ferrari? Definitely. There's no argument that the track dynamics suited Red Bull that weekend, all the things that the Red Bull likes. So long straights, no, Singapore doesn't have it. Um, a, a lot of acceleration out of slow corners but not going into other ones like proceeding long straights no singapore doesn't have that high altitude it's literally called marina bay no it hasn't got that the ferrari with all of its advantages really should have been the fastest car that weekend and in a lot of sessions it appeared that that was the case i was very surprised and disappointed that ferrari weren't able to take the fight to perez wheel to wheel in the last 20 minutes or so of the race among a litany of others, it will go down as another missed opportunity. They can only be grateful for just how badly Mercedes did that weekend. Yeah, I mean, it was a... Mercedes certainly have picked up as well, and that's a point we can come on to in a little bit as well. I guess Ferrari finding themselves not just in the battle for second in the drivers, but to an extent the battle for second in the Constructors' Championship too. Um, Sam, one thing that I think has been quite characteristic of 2022, and I saw an interesting... I saw an interesting stat about this in referring to Charles Leclerc because obviously Singapore was another example of Leclerc qualifying on pole and not converting that into a win. Um, just out of interest, I'll throw this out here to both Sam and Joe. Um, 
How many pole positions and wins has Charles Leclerc had in his career so far? Because this, I think, is telling of something in 2022. But just throw it out there. Sam's actually Googling it. So that is... You don't know what I'm Googling. I I, I fear this would be the time. I'll break it to you. 18 pole positions in his career. Five five victories. Yeah. Five wins. 23 podiums, if you want the exact figure. I'm all right. I'm all right on the side of the podium. But interestingly, as well, if you look at just 2022, so three race victories in 2022, yet having a count here, nine pole positions. This this issue that Leclerc has got, we've talked about these uncharacteristic mistakes, but I saw this on social media where a big problem Leclerc is, is having is that he can't convert pole positions into victories in a way that Verstappen has doesn't always have the fastest qualifying pace, but when the points count on Sunday, he's the one there picking up the pieces. Um, Sam, you know, we talk as much as we talk about Ferrari's issues this season. This is a recurring theme, and we talk about missed opportunities. It feels like this stat embodies that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's no doubt there's a slight discrepancy between Ferrari qualifying pace and Ferrari race pace, which you can uh, attribute that to partly. But at the same time, there's no doubt that on race day, when it ultimately matters, Verstappen can up his performance and... um, and achieve even better results, whereas Leclerc hasn't quite been able to do that this season. I mean, I'm not really sure what that's necessarily down to, but it's clearly something that he needs to work on as a driver to be able to reach anywhere near that Verstappen level of performance. Do we think, both of you quickly, and I guess this is maybe not just a thing for 2022, but beyond 2022 as well, if Ferrari get their act together strategically and have a consistent car and race pace, if they're certainly a lot closer to Red Bull, do you think that this stat that we've seen with Leclerc, this difficulty in converting pole positions into victories, I mean, do you think that's as much down to... Do, do you think that's going to be what holds him back, maybe from challenging Verstappen, if Mercedes get their act together, Hamilton, or contending for the championship in the future? Joe, I'll start with you. He Statistically, he's certainly never going to challenge either of them, but in terms of a one season battle a one even a one race battle against them it's difficult to put your money on him at the moment genuinely low key since austria i can't remember a race weekend where i've been incredibly impressed by leclerc second half of the season honestly i <sighs> converting qualifying pace into the race is definitely something he has to work on it's always been a a lesser theme of Charles Leclerc's weaknesses ever since his first season at Ferrari, but I still put the overwhelming blame on the car, on the setup of the car specifically, and on the strategy this year. For for as much as Charles Leclerc has lost in terms of pace compared to Max Verstappen, a lot of his results have basically been written before quarter distance. Sam? Uh, yeah, effectively, I completely agree with Joe. I think it's always been a theme of his career to date and uh, to be honest I don't think I mean people were trying on Twitter and stuff like that to say that he was in the same category as Verstappen in the echelon of drivers but he's absolutely not he's very much the rung below I think even I mean Carlos Sainz hasn't had a great year but I think him and Leclerc might be quite controversial in my eyes are very much on a similar level and Mm. so I doubt he'll ever be able to necessarily translate that into 
into a championship winning performance. Well, let's talk about some of the other drivers around that bit of the field. Now, Carlos Sainz, um, Sam, you just brought him up there. Mm. Um, it's fair to say, not a, well, a, a mixed view rate, a mixed bag of races for him. Singapore, he was unremarkable and off the pace, at least certainly compared to his teammate. Suzuka, he spun off on the first lap. Tricky conditions, yes, but, you know, still not really something you'd expect from a top Ferrari driver. And then in the US, okay, yes, getting pole position, and you could argue get unfairly getting taken out by George Russell, but even so, Carlos Sainz has been a, it's been an interesting one this year, just that there's been so much promise, yet a lot of just not delivering. And... I, I don't know. We've always said does 2022 a year where maybe Carlos Sainz has shown where the hype maybe hasn't been justified. But looking back at these last few races and these inconsistencies, do you think that, you know, we're still we're still seeing that from Carlos Sainz? That ultimately, the fact he's not higher up in the championship, maybe where Ferrari expect him, is because of that. It was because of that inconsistency, Sam, yeah. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, Carlos Sainz just hasn't had a good year. Um, he hasn't managed to quite get a grip on the car in the same way that Charles Leclerc has done. But I still think there's no doubt he's a very, very good driver. There's a reason Ferrari, despite their strategy problems and their probably long-term planning problems, um, gave him a long-term contract. And you, we've seen at McLaren and at Renault before then, he, he's a very good driver and a very, on his day, a consistent driver. And so I, I rate him very highly. I'm not sure what Joe thinks. Joe probably disagrees. But I, th- I still admire Carlos Sainz. And I think he could be a very good driver and potentially a championship competing driver in the future. Well, I know Joe's always uh, been more in the shell of Claire over the Carlos Sainz camp. But certainly in the last few races, we've seen the Claire really pull out a gap on Carlos Sainz. Even if in one race, OK, he got taken out and he put the car on pole position. But... Is the jury still out on Carlos Sainz? Okay, excluding Japan, I actually think on balance, Sainz has been level pegging, if not slightly better than Leclerc post-summer break. Some of the races, he's like Italy, he was Mm. outstanding. Oh, exceptional, yeah. Save for Tafris, I don't think anyone was as impressive that weekend as Carlos Sainz was. I'd still say he's in the same kind of rung as Charles Leclerc, but I definitely would put Leclerc ahead of him. Like, there are... There are four instances this year where Carlos Sainz has retired on lap one, and respectfully, Mm -hmm. two of those were his fault. Mm -hmm. So it's not like people can level the little mistakes claim at Charles Leclerc. It's it's completely true of Carlos Sainz as well. Um, He's definitely a driver with faults, but saying that, there's no one I'd replace him with if I was Ferrari, because you're not going to get Verstappen. Hamilton's too old. I don't really trust George Russell. With the exception of Lando Norris, there's no one I'd consider replacing Carlos Sainz with were I Mattia Bonotto. And the only option of Lando Norris, Sainz trounced him. So, well, it let's... works itself out. Yeah, well, let, let, let's have a look at um, Mercedes. You brought up George Russell very quickly. I just wanted your thoughts, because obviously we were, there was talk Mercedes might be able to challenge Ferrari for second in the Constructors' Championship. That, it seems, has fallen away in the last few races. Yes, obviously, some circumstances outside of their control, but a couple of error-strewn races, particularly in Singapore, it has to be said, for both Mercedes drivers. Um, before we begin, George Russell has 
it seems, ha- developed himself a bit of a reputation for crashing into everyone that exists in Formula One at the moment. Um, I mean, firstly, let's just go back to Singapore. That over, I call it an overtake on Kevin Magnussen because it wasn't an overtake. It was like a demolition derby. It was like Russell had a dodgem. And he was just driving that dodgem around the slippery track in Singapore. And we all know how that's going to end up. But George Russell's been getting a little bit of hate on social media recently. He's turned from the darling, the poster boy, into that, that mate of yours that you don't really... He's got a bit of a dodgy driver that you don't really want to get in the car with. That's what... I feel that's where his reputation has been changing too quickly. Um, I don't know, Joe... He's certainly been the quicker of the two Mercedes drivers consistently throughout the season. Obviously, Lewis has had some fantastic performances throughout the year, but certainly if you take the season as a whole, and the results certainly would stack up that George Russell, he's had the better results this year. But do you think this reputation, because it seems Russell has had the accusation of being a hothead in the past. You only have to look at Imola back last year to kind of get that sense. But I know, do you think that's just the increased scrutiny of being in a Mercedes or do you think this is something that's been a bit more problematic over the last few races? It's the inevitable consequence of being put alongside and compared to the personality of Lewis Hamilton and coming into direct conflict with particularly his fan base. Um, A lot of the hate that Russell was getting off the back of the Dutch Grand Prix in particular was completely unjustified and just the worst elements of the LH44 fan base coming out and putting absolute deranged nonsense against him. Singapore is completely different, though, and in fact, the only the only defence I have for Lewis Hamilton that weekend is that George Russell was objectively worse across almost all of the sessions. And actually, Russell, I mean, you say he's been quicker than Lewis over the course of the year. The points totals say that. Mm. But honestly, macro, I'm not so sure. I would I would struggle to argue that he has had a more impressive season than what Lewis Hamilton has had. I mean, there was those few races in the middle of the season, around June, July, where Lewis was undoubtedly back to the kind of form yeah. that we were expecting from him. But certainly, I'd say after the summer break, I would say Lewis Hamilton has... Or I'd say both drivers have, in a way, dipped a little bit. But Lewis Hamilton's dip, I think, might has just been that little bit more. Austin aside, I think that dip's just been a little bit more for Lewis Hamilton in terms of the form we know we can see from him compared to George Russell. Again, but you can put, you're comparing a seven-time world champion against that, someone who's in a competitive car for the first time. Honestly, with the exception of Belgium, where what Lewis Hamilton did was diabolical, um, I don't, I can't remember a weekend post-summer break where Russell has outperformed Hamilton. That's not, that's not a slight on him though. He's had a very good season, um, but certainly not on the level of a Hamilton, Leclerc, and not in the same ionosphere as Verstappen. Well, Sam, I mean, is there anything for you to add there? Because obviously, for Mercedes, it's I. I there were some people saying that they should have been able to get seconds this season. And there was a brief moment where it looked like it was possible. Maybe not so much now, but certainly, do you th- what do you think you, they'd want from the last few races? Do you think, in particular, they would be looking to get a victory in the last three races and say that that, for them, would be a successful season? Because they did come so close with Lewis Hamilton in Austin, getting overtaken in the last few laps of the race, nearly Lewis Hamilton's, Lewis Hamilton's record of winning a race in every season still under threat. 
do you think Mercedes will need a victory from one of these last three races to say that the year's been a success? Or overall, has it just been underwhelming? I think in no hemisphere can you say that this season has been a success for Mercedes when you compare it to the last 10 years where they've been by far the most dominant team. So um, whether they win a race or not, I think this season has undoubtedly been a failure for them. But at the same time, considering where they've come from this season, where they obviously had all the porpoising issues at the start of the year, which which they were especially affected by and how good Ferrari were in comparison to them. The fact they're within however many 50 or 60 points of Ferrari is, is quite an achievement in itself. I mean, we were talking about Russell, his season's kind of turned on ahead because everyone was talking at the start of the year about how consistent he's been and how he finished in races that he did finish. He always finished in the top five. So from a consistency standpoint, it has been a successful year for Mercedes, but... And it is impressive that they are so close to Ferrari. But overall, by Mercedes standards, this has not been a good year. Well, let's just close on another few drivers quickly. Um, We've sort of had double use and L's. It's been a theme we've run in the last few episodes. Um, I just want to quickly shout out three W's. I think that all need to get a mention from the last few races. I want your thoughts on each of this. Firstly, Lando Norris for Singapore. I think... You know, easily you could have made the case for Sergio Perez to have been driver of the day in Singapore. Lando Norris, for me, a very, very close second. The way that he was not only holding his own with Verstappen and Hamilton, but looking so assured to the point where I was like, he can hold off the reigning world champion and the seven-time world champion. You know, for me, I've, I have so many times this year been more impressed with Lando Norris in 2022 than I have been with Lando Norris in 2021. That says a lot, I think, about just how good he's driven this year. And then also to Fernando Alonso and to Sebastian Vettel for... Nicholas Latifi. Well, Nicholas Latifi too. Um, for Well, Nicholas Latifi um, triggering a W for um, his alternative way of driving around the, um, the, the chicane at Suzuka. But speaking of Suzuka, Fernando Alonso and Sebastian Vettel reminding us why they are two of the best drivers this century, that wheel-to-reel racing between the two of them there, absolutely extraordinary to watch. Alonso in particular, using the fresher tyres there as well. A fantastic performance, just some fantastic racing from the three of them there. Um, I guess any other Ws and Ls we want to throw around for the last few races? Joe, start with you. My only answer to that is I was just thinking, if Max Verstappen is the best driver this year, who is the second? And after the last few races, I find it very hard to argue against Lando Norris. What he has done with that slow in a straight line, oftentimes near defective McLaren, is just incredible. He's made Daniel Ricciardo look even worse than he did last year. He's almost always the highest non-works finisher in the field. And it is only due to him that McLaren are even close to Alpine in the constructors. Mm. I'd forgotten about him briefly, but... Lando Norris, with the exception of Max, has been the biggest W of the last few rounds for me, Macro. How of interest, Joe? I mean, Lando Norris came out recently and said that he had a kind of offer on the table even from from Red Bull in recent years. How high do you think his ceiling is? I mean, would you say he's in the echelon of drivers of Charles Leclerc? Would you say he's better than Charles Leclerc? Would you say he's just below Verstappen? Whereabouts does he rank in your eyes? I really struggle with it, Sam, because he's never had a car near the front. The fact he's only only raced for one team as well 
Um, like he had a lot of hype when he came into Formula Two and then he won exactly one race for the whole season and Russell absolutely annihilated him. Saying that he did still finish second in a very competitive season. I don't know. I find it hard to argue that George Russell is better than Lando Norris at the moment. That's about the only answer I could give at the moment, I think. Mm. I, th- I think the thing is that you, because we discussed this before with Norris and Russell, that you have, George Russell is very, very quick. Yes, he does make mistakes sometimes, but he's very, very quick. Lando Norris is quick, but he's also ultra consistent. And that's the reason that he's getting the points totals he's getting in the McLaren, because his consistency is what is getting him anywhere near where he is in terms of being able to get towards the top five, get towards the upper end of the points. And, you know, for an upper midfield team, which is where McLaren are, that's really what you need from Lando Norris. That's what you need in that position. The test is going to be, I think, if he does have front-running machinery, what will he be like when he has the opportunity to win races? What will he be like when he's being consistently expected, maybe not to be the number one driver, but to be the one who comes in second, comes in third, beats the number one of the other team? Effectively, the role that Sergio Perez is doing now. And... It's an interesting one because I don't think necessarily Sergio Perez's stock has fallen since he's gone to Red Bull, but there's not the same sort of excitement about how far Perez could go. There's been certainly a ceiling has been set that he's not going to reach the levels of Verstappen, the Claire, the number ones at the other teams. I think that honestly is where Lando Norris could be. I mean, it's an interesting thing if... I don't know, Lewis Hamilton was to retire and Lando Norris replace him at Mercedes and you have Norris and Russell there. I think that would be the test because I don't think he'd be going into that team like Sergio Perez went into Rebel with a very clear ceiling as to what he could do. But that, I think, is the only opportunity he would get at Mercedes to really show just how far he could go unless McLaren drastically improved the car. That's where I think he is. But he's got potential. We also have to remember that McLaren at the moment are a works team of Mercedes. So you have to think, would Mercedes even let McLaren challenge for a championship? I very much doubt that. who knows? I mean, when when McLaren were running Renault engines, let's not forget that McLaren were the faster team throughout much of that time in the last few years. So it's it's an interesting prospect. But no, Lando Norris, I think he is one of those enigmas that I don't think we've quite fully cracked and maybe maybe his legacy that if that he does hit a ceiling on track at least off track and on social media <laughs> there is no ceiling to where Lando Norris could go not that that matters as such but speaking of social media if you do want to follow the podcast drop us a follow at armchair f1 pod um we're going to be sticking around we're going to be talking about um, plenty more to come off track. We know more about the driver lineups next year. There's been quite a bit of controversy with the stewards as well. So I think we're going to dedicate this next section to talking about all of the controversy off track. That coming up next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Okay, let's move off track now and let's look at some of the, well, I say off track. Let's look at some of the off-track controversies about stuff that's happened on track in the last few races. And that means it's time for us to talk about the FIA and particularly the stewards. Um, We're going to start off by talking about the stewards because some of their decisions in the last few races, it's fair to say, have been a little bit baffling. 
Um, and it's not just penalties we're talking about here. It's a few moans we've had quite consistently. Um, and perhaps my biggest bugbear now. Um, let's start off with talking about weather. Um, we had a lot of discussions this year, whether that be how long it took DRS to be activated in Imola. The fact that was probably 20 laps far too late um, for that to turn on. The fact that this there was so much of a delay in Monaco that during the red flag that by the time the track was racing resumed again, the track was dry enough for intermediates. A similar moan, it seems, was put on um, in Singapore, where after delaying the start procedure, the FIA decided we're not going to do a cut-through start procedure. We are going to run the entire start procedure, which, you know, obviously makes sense to have to do, but then have the car sat on the grid for 40 minutes, you know, is not something that I think many fans there were particularly looking forward to. And then, of course, in Japan, the, it seems the fact that four words in the regulations changed drastically how points were to be awarded that day it's you know it just seems that there's just so much going on at the FIA at the moment that just doesn't make sense at all Joe I want to start off with you first firstly on the point of the weather um the fact that you know I I can remember the days where we would have red flags in the past for rain and you we would spend ages afterwards of drivers going around on the full wet tyre just because of how wet it is, but the fact that it's safe enough to drive on. It seems like now the full wet tyre is barely considered. I rarely ever see it out on track. And I do think, obviously, you have to keep the fans, you have to keep the drivers, you have to keep the marshals safe. But I do think with a lot of red flag periods, I think they're leaving it too long to restart the races. I don't know if that's a view you share. It's a tricky one because safety is absolutely paramount to me, as you know, but I've just been so baffled this year at how the full wet tyre just never seems to be used, which begs the question, well, what on earth is it for? You just cannot start races in 2022 in conditions necessitating the full wet tyre. At Singapore, the matter was slightly different, of course, because... I mean, Singapore, there's no other track on the calendar more affected by rain, I think, Mm. than Singapore. It slows down what is already a a very long lap is extended by a solid 15, 16 seconds minimum and corner speeds slow to a crawl. So if you end up with one car in the wall at Singapore, basically the whole race has to be red flagged almost by default. But that's an issue with the track. It's not an issue with the tyre compound. And and the, the problem ultimately is the FIA and the stewards failing to deal with the track appropriately. Honestly, there's a lot to say about the inconsistency of the stewards. All I will say before moving on to anything else, if we do, is that the decision to have two race directors this year has not worked. Mm. It no, has I agree. absolutely not worked. Niels Vitek should have been the race director at every single weekend because that is where a lot of the inconsistency originates from. Yeah, I mean, it's the fact that we spent so much of last year complaining about inconsistencies with one race director. The fact that appointing a second that it, it seems that drivers don't know what the rule book's going to be. And it adds to, and I think where all this confusion exists, it means you're getting either stewards being too cautious or just not thinking properly when it comes to making decisions. Sam, I don't know what's your view on that. Yeah, it's a very hard one, isn't it? I mean, I think there's been stages this year where, yes, the drivers don't know what's going on, but the whole public doesn't know what's going on. I think it was Monza where there was the thing about the 
driver liner. I think we talked about mm. it on the last podcast where no one knew what was going to happen until like half a, half an hour before the race was going to start. So, yeah, I mean, I'm probably not well-versed enough on the dynamics of the FIA to really comment on the idea of two race directors as opposed to one. But I think it does, I mean... This is a kind of sport where decisions have to be made in split seconds, right? They have mm. to be made over a couple of minutes. And the idea that you have two people debating that rather than one making an authoritative decision just doesn't really work no. in my eyes. Or it's I not think. necessarily the fact it's two debating, it's the fact that that person yeah. changes yeah, yeah, yeah. all the sorry, time. Sorry, sorry, that's, that's, exactly. that's the issue there. But, you know, there are some things you'd think by now the FIA would know to get right, i.e. not sending a recovery vehicle out onto a track where the visibility is extremely, extremely low mm. on a track that's already, you know, by the nature of Suzuka, it's not an easy track to drive. It's one where mistakes are punished quite easily. You know, I remember seeing the scenes of Pierre Gasly driving past the tractor. Now, arguably, you could have, you could make the argument that Pierre Gasly should have been driving slower, but he wasn't necessarily breaching the delta at that point. But to have that recovery vehicle on the edge of the track, and given, you know, the recent history, the recent tragic history of Formula One cars and recovery vehicles in torrential rain at Suzuka, you know, it baffles me. Surely someone at the FIA or someone at the stewards would have thought, hmm, this is not a good idea. Why is this happening on the side of the track? I mean, what what were your guys' thoughts when you first saw this? Because there was a footage of Pierre Gasly driving past the tractor, and you know, I was just I was just stunned watching it. Um, Joe, I mean, start off with you. What what was? I know you didn't watch the race live, but you saw the footage. What what did you think at that point? I didn't just see the footage. It was the first thing I saw of the entire Japanese Grand Prix, and I just. I felt like I, I watched it in bed because it was early morning and I thought that I was still dreaming. It's the kind of thing that just should not be happening at all. A track returning to the calendar after three years absent and they create the exact circumstances that saw the last ever fatality in Formula One at the, exactly the same track, exactly the same conditions, exactly the same circumstances. And then to have the idiots on Sky Sports, on Sky Sports F1 coverage, blaming Gasly for this, saying that he shouldn't have been driving quickly past it. Mm. He's come into the pits. It's safety car conditions. He has to catch up. That's how safety cars work. Oh, he must have been breaching the Delta. No, he was nine seconds down on the Delta. He should have been going faster than he was. Mm. They, they say, oh, yeah, you know, it's poor visibility. You know, he needs to be more... Well, if it's poor visibility, respectfully, how the hell does he know there's an accident there? How the hell can he see a crane from more than 100 yards away? Their arguments just don't add up. I'm amazed they didn't face some kind of reprimand for it. I really, I've talked about it a lot. I really don't enjoy talking about it. It's one of the worst things I've seen in F1 this year. The first thing I see of the Japanese Grand Prix, my favorite race of the year, is one of my favorite drivers almost getting killed. Mm. It's just unacceptable. Absolutely. And I think it was good to see drivers as well come out on social media and uh, just be very clear that this was unacceptable. And I think it's an interesting thing that, I don't know, modern Formula One and drivers being able to use their voices more to speak out. I don't think I'd seen something where the drivers were so roundly condemning the stewards so publicly as we saw at the start of the Japanese Grand Prix. And maybe that little bit of public pressure will force them, or I say force them, make sure they don't do something as stupid as that again. 
we can only hope. Um, something else, though, at the Japanese Grand Prix, Sam. Um, the points that were awarded at the end of the race. Um, because it is folklore in Formula One that if a race isn't run to its full distance, um, you don't award, you don't have to award full points for it. It was, of course, up to last year. Three quarters distance was the requirement for full points. It got changed um, after the Belgian Grand Prix last year and the fact that half points were awarded for a race that only took place under the safety car. So they brought in these new rules this year about shortening the races and they brought in a system of quarter points, half points, three quarter points, depending on how many laps have been completed. So as we believed it was after 28 laps of the Japanese Grand Prix, um, the belief was that three quarter points would be awarded and Max Verstappen would not be world champion that day in Suzuka. Um, it's just the problem was, was that they left a few words on the regulations and they, they, they left the words, um, if the race is not restarted in the regulations, which means that because the race finished under a green flag, it was automatically four points awarded to Max Verstappen was crowned world champion, which he only found out not when he was crossing the line and celebrating on the final lap. And you get the Christian Horner message of, oh, Max Verstappen, you're a double world champion. He found out in the pit lane whilst he was getting interviewed. Farcical, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that r rules can be so technical and not even the FIA knows how to work them out isn't really testament to how great those rules are I mean I thought it was almost funny for me how different it was compared to last season last season the world championship was decided by one lap of, of racing of last minute drama whereas this season poor old Max was sitting relaxing uh, in the post post race press conference when behind him flashes up world champion 2022 and then it goes away again and everyone's like oh what's happened and then suddenly it flashes up again and says world champion and he's told that he's the world champion and he's kind of just like oh okay i've won the world championship it's yeah it's, it's it's clearly not the way that he would have liked to win it and clearly some clarification needs to happen in the future well speaking of decision making by the fia shall we go on to talk about the cost cap um this is the, the big debate that's been raging in Formula One over the last month. Um, at the start of October, we found out that Red Bull were under investigation for breaching a minor breach of the cost cap that was introduced in Formula One last year. The cost cap was 135, oh, sorry, it's 145 million pounds last year. They overspent by 1.86 million pounds, which they put down to extra catering provisions and other off-track provisions that weren't directly connected to the car. Um, this was um, obviously been investigated by the, the FIA, which with potential punishments, including the deduction of drivers and constructors championship points, which would have been significant penalties. Um, in the end, however, um, the Red Bull and the FIA agreed to what is known as an ABA, or an associated breach agreement, which allowed them to come to an off-track settlement where Red Bull accept fault, and consequently the penalty is perhaps slightly lesser than the maximum. Um, Red Bull were fined 
$7 million, £6.07 million, and given a 10% reduction in their permitted aero time for next year, effectively 10% less wind tunnel time as a result of this. Um, it's been, of course, Red Bull have admitted that they, um, obviously through signing the ABA, that they did breach the rules. Um, there's been no public comment from them, but we have heard some some condemnation from other teams, in particular McLaren, who CEO Zach Brown wrote a pretty strongly worded letter to the FIA about Red Bull's breach, effectively accusing them of cheating. Um, McLaren have come out today. Zach Brown has said um, that he's called the FIA to go further. He said that a much stronger deterrent should be in place. Sam, let's come to you first. Um, do you think that the punishment handed down by the FIA to Red Bull was fair? Ultimately, um, I would say that it probably was fair and it probably should have gone slightly further, if I'm being completely honest. I mean, obviously, I'd like Max to have all the tools possible at his disposal, but in this case, I think I have to put it to one side because the kind of conglomerate that Red Bull are means that seven million practically makes no difference to them, I think. The seven million would have been far better applied if it had been uh, a reduction from next year's cost cap. I think that would have been a far more um, effective penalty. I think the wind tunnel it obviously will have a huge difference. I think Christian Horner is slightly overstating it when he says it will have an effect of 0.25 seconds every lap. I'll probably still be winning races. They'll probably still be winning case. races, but um, but ultimately, I don't think it's really gone far enough, especially the fine. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting one because I think personally you need to create a strong deterrent and you need to use your first punishment to make an example of that. And I look at that and particularly if you're a team like, I don't know, Williams or Alfa Romeo, Sauber or Audi, as they will now be known from Mm -hmm. 2026, if you're one of those teams and I would be like, yeah, that's quite a significant amount to you. But you mentioned the conglomerate of Red Bull. You mentioned the fact there is vast financial resources that they have and to be quite honest, that's not going to hit them as much. It's not really... It's a bit of a slap on the wrist. It, I think it goes a bit further than a slap on the wrist, and I think the aero time is significant, but it really could have gone further. It's not material enough, I think, in the fact that, you know, if there was an advantage that Red Bull gains by breaching the cost cap, the fact that it might have, you know, it might have given Verstappen that extra bit of performance that he needed to win the world title, win the drivers' championship, you know there is a bit of thought. Well, should there have been a points deduction? I mean, a points deduction wouldn't have really made any difference this year. But you know, at least the overhanging threat of a points deduction, a suspended points deduction, maybe would have seemed a lot more threatening and really put it on the table for Red Bull that they know if they breach the cost cap again, they're going to get a hefty points deduction. So yeah, I think. It's good, but it's not far enough. And I think you need something more material that is really going to have an impact on the championship, I think, more to act as that deterrent. Joe, do you, what, what's your thoughts? Do you think this is fair from the FIA? Do you think that, that in the end of the day, maybe it's not the deterrent that it should have been? For the second time in one and a half decades, a cost cap has been introduced and now seems basically pointless. Mm. Toto Wolff's argument that, well, if all we get to fine, which, by the way, is exempt 
from the cost cap paying that fine does not do how ironic can the fia possibly be if that's all the penalty for, for in exchange for what three years of potential domination in f1 they'll happily pay it yeah i would exactly. be very surprised if if the cost caps in its current iteration survives beyond the end of 2024 even never mind the next set of regulations I'm not one of these people that thinks you should take Max's championship from him. I actually invite a lot of the people who do say that to justify Max losing his championship for 2021, but Lewis and Fernando not being excluded from 2007 with Spygate controversy, which had a much more overt and direct performance advantage on the cars that they would have been driving. But when Zach Brown says that an overspend constitutes cheating, I'm sorry. It's not a matter of I agree with him. He's right. Yeah. These are clearly defined. You cannot spend beyond this point. Here's the list of things that are included in the cost cap. Here is the extensive list of things that aren't. If Red Bull have overspent by a million dollars, somewhere in the region of a million dollars, that's cheating to me. And you have to face a penalty which is greater than 10% of wind tunnel time going down, which, by the way, is nothing, and a fine which has absolutely no long-term consequences whatsoever. I... I'm staggered. So, I, so what, what, what would you what, what, what would you have suggested then instead? Because I mean, I I would have said a potential suspended points deduction from a future season for a future breach and a significantly hefty one. I'm thinking a ten percent points. I mean, that is me plucking a figure out of the air, but it could be the difference in a close season between winning and losing a championship, and it leaves it does create the deterrent to not overspend in the future but i acknowledge for some they may say well it doesn't rectify the immediate problem what what about you have you got any other punishments that you think would have been better i support the suspended points deduction it incentivizes teams to reform it worked with renault after singapore 09 that's the suspended disqualification was what they were given but aside from that um a reduction in future cost cap for at least three years somewhere between 3 and 5%, I would say, is fair, considering the size of their operation, and an absolute gutting of Red Bull Racing's wind tunnel and CFD development time for the next season. I don't, if you have overspent, that is a direct performance benefit. If yeah, you and want it, to curb overspending and cheating on the cost cap, you attack CFD and you attack wind tunnel time. I am staggered that the FIA could not come to that in the ABA. Yeah, and some people might say, well, 10% is still a lot, but at the end of the day, you can, you, you don't, have, you don't need that many runs. Red Bull will be losing what two or three wind tunnel runs next season. When you think about it, how much difference is that going to make to them, Sam? Any anything else you might have suggested for Red Bull? Uh, I just, I think everything Joe said basically. Um, I think that this penalty, the financial fine away from the cost cap makes no sense whatsoever and I think the FIA surely would have known that that would have made very little difference to Red Bull if anything they're encouraging teams to flout it in the future with this kind of with this kind of um, if you can call it a penalty penalty um, and yeah I think I think as Joe said we'll see the cost cap disappear within two or three mm. seasons yeah and I think that's that that I think is the biggest loss from all of this it's the fact that you know we were all seeing it when we first saw the breach the fact that the aba existed i think just made it clear that you know they were going to go down that option politically it seems like the best one where you can seem like you're putting down a penalty but you're not going to do something so drastic you end up losing one of the you know a massive 
commercial part of Formula One that the Red Bull brand is. And, you know, the cost cap, it, it, it is dead in the water now. I think, you know, because you, you've not created the deterrent and the minute the deterrent doesn't exist, well, that's it. You can Teams will just see how far they can push the boundaries. You're encouraging them to go into the grey areas. And that, I think, is going to be, that is the real loss from this now. And, you know, we add to all the issues that the FIA have, but it seems that, I think, in a more general point, they have teeth, but they bite in the wrong places, i.e. punishing Fernando Alonso, giving him a 30-second penalty for driving without his wing mirror after he was basically given nowhere to go and hitting and going into the back of Lance Stroll on the back straight at Austin or going after Lewis Hamilton for wearing jewellery as a safety issue, despite the fact that no one has gone after Lewis Hamilton for doing that in the last decade. I don't know about you guys, but Joe, I'll come to you again first. It just seems that the FIA's bite is always in the wrong place. I mean, I'm sure we all have plenty to say about this. It has not improved since last year. I said, I said earlier that the two race directors thing has been a disaster. And, it, and that was none more true than at the USGP where Eduardo Freitas gay, um, did not hand a black, and, a black and orange flag to Sergio Perez with the wing hanging off. Whereas the three times it had happened to Kevin Magnussen earlier in the year, Niels Vitek had thrown that flag. So clearly there's discrepancy between having two different race directors. How the FIA could not understand that, I've got no idea. But personally, potentially an unpopular opinion, that 30-second penalty fiasco to Alonso, I think that's the worst thing the stewards and the FIA have done all year. How on earth can you justify taking half a minute of time on the road, six points from Alpine, in a critical Constructors' Championship battle because Fernando Alonso didn't come in because you didn't tell him to. I, th- I think that is hands down the worst thing they've done this year. Yeah, and it was the fact that almost afterwards, I remember that it was the surprise that he was even a being investigated and when he got the penalty, just how severe it was. Like, you make a big point of it. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, they made this big point about all oh, the fact the mirror wasn't on the car. But fundamentally, that was something the FAA, as you said, should have rectified with a black and orange flag during the race. And again, it it does seem to go down to the inconsistency there in the race directors, which you've brought up. I mean, Sam, that penalty, it's been rescinded now, we have to say. So Alonso's six points have been reinstated. But even the fact that it came to that in the first place just seems like one massive fiasco. Yeah, well, the FIA seems to swing the way of which team puts the most pressure on them. So after that race, Haas, who obviously finished behind Alonso, were incredibly frustrated and were looking for any excuse they could possibly find. And they found that that safety issue. And so they went to the FIA, cried a little bit, and the FIA said, OK, fine, you, you can have what you want. Then Alpine were like, OK, we don't like that. They went to the FIA, cried a little bit, and the FIA has now swung back the other in the right direction so I think the FIA basically needs that as we were talking about earlier on needs that one person at the top with a clear decision making and concrete decision making that can basically make things a bit clearer in time in in seasons to come well let's let's move on from the FIA because I feel we can't dedicate a whole off-track session to complaining about the FIA let's talk about some stuff going on off the track at the moment particularly with the driver market we are starting to see the driver market for 2023 
um, take place. We obviously um, had the confirmation that Zhao Guangzhou, as the um, terrible um, pronunciator for the um, the terrible track announcer at Austin, pronounced his name as it is to be clear, Zhou Guanyu. But I, I, I it was. It was that embar- It was just the, one of the most embarrassing things I've seen all year. But yeah, Zhou Guan Yu is going to be racing for Alfa Romeo again next season, partnering Valtteri Bottas. We had, of course, we mentioned Nick de Vries and where he might be on the grid next year. Well, Pierre Gasly has will be leaving Scuderia Alfa Tauri to partner Esteban Ocon at Alpine next year. Nick de Vries is taking his seat alongside Yuki Tsunoda at Alpha Tauri. So quite two very, very big moves there. I want to ask your thoughts on this. Joe, let's come to you first. You're a massive Pierre Gasly fan. What do you firstly think about his move to Alpine next year? I'm just so glad he finally gets a works drive after all these years. It was beginning to get truly ridiculous that a driver of his caliber would have spent over 90% of his career in Formula One as an explicit junior or sister team. So I'm glad he's finally gotten, relatively speaking, his big break. With the state of Alpha Tauri this year, it's impossible to argue it's anything other than an upgrade. It's probably being met with a fairly handsome salary increase as well versus what Alpha Tauri would be paying him. I'm a fan of the move. I think it works for him. He's coming up against, although he's not in amazing form at the moment, a very strong teammate in Esteban Ocon. This whole idea of the all-French team is fairly ridiculous. I don't remember Enstone being part of the French Republic at any point. But I think it's a a good move for him, a good move for Alpine as well. After losing Piastri, I don't think there was anyone better that they could have put in that seat, to be honest. Well, maybe Daniel Ricciardo, some might say. But I think Daniel Ricciardo's stock has fallen enough that it made it it a prerequisite. And it's an interesting one, Sam, because Gasly and Ocon have, it's fair to say off track, had their fair share of fireworks, allegedly, over the years. Do you think it's going to be a harmonious squad at Ensto next year? Or in true Viva la Revolution fashion, we're going to see scenes akin to the French strike at the 2010 World Cup or some, <laughs> some, something of that ilk. To be honest, Cam, it's one of the kind of little stories that I'm looking forward to most next year. I think that will be an incredibly interesting dynamic, not just off track, but on track mm. as well, because they're obviously, as Joe mentioned, they're both drivers of extremely high calibre. And so whoever comes out on top, I mean, it'll be a bit of a toss-up. If I had to swing one way at the moment, I'd probably go for Ocon because he knows the team, he knows the yeah. car. But um, ultimately, I think they'll be able to put whatever animosity was between them aside and at least in public give a show of being good friends as they supposedly once were. Yeah, and it's one of those things as well, I think, for Gasly, where all this hype that has been made of him this is his chance to finally prove that he can justify that. And if he doesn't outperform Ocon, I think this really is the the end of Pierre Gasly going to a top, top team in Formula 1. I think hands down that if he can't doesn't outperform him next year, he's got to do it from the start. Or he is going to fall back in the pecking order. And that, I think, is just going to... So, so that's going to be, in some ways, the ceiling for Gasly. So it's a big it's a big move. It's a move he needed to make, but it's one he needs to perform at as well. Um, let's talk about someone else, Nick DeFries. We mentioned him going into that Alpha Tauri seat. Um, I'm really excited for DeFries. I think he's one of those ones because I know Joe. We've always said that his win in 
his F2 title win was unremarkable and he was not facing the best quality fields. But, you know, we saw how he performed at Monza. We saw how brilliantly he did coming in eighth there. And it almost seemed after that an inevitability in some ways that he would be on the grid next year. Alpha Tauri maybe not at first the most logical destination, it seems. But, Joe, coming to you first, what do you make of um, Nick de Vries on the grid next year? It's good, I think, that he's there. But it's, it's interesting he's gone to Alpha Tauri. Definitely. And it also precedes, I suspect, a massive clear out of the Red Bull junior program if literally no one else from their F2 teams were willing to, were ready to replace Pierre Gasly at that team. And I completely agree with them. And I think they should probably purge about 60% of their junior drivers the way this year's gone. So I 100% agree with the choice of putting Nick DeFries in the car. In terms of teams, I don't think he could have got one with a better progression. If Perez falls off at all, the appeal of having an all-Dutch Red Bull lineup in a couple of years is very strong. Do I think Nick de Vries can get there? I don't know on his true ability, but he's definitely F1 material. We saw that at Monza. I wish he would have been given a second chance in Singapore because I still don't think Alex Albon was well enough to race, judging his performance. And I think he's... Famous last words, but I think he's going to annihilate Sonoda next year. Well, I, I don't think that's famous last words. I think just but having seen... The fact that we're... Even this De Vries in his debut season in Formula One, we were already a lot of people saying, well, he's going to be the number one at Alpha Tauri just because of how shocking Sonoda now, has been. To be fair, did you, did you see Yuki's first lap uh, in, in Austin? He overtook about six people, which was unbelievable. One lap of but, good performance from Sonoda. I, I, I love Yuki. I love him. He's such a fun guy to watch. But, and but, but that, that doesn't necessarily qualify number one driver at yeah, Alpha Tauri. yeah, yeah. You can enjoy him in Super Formula when he inevitably ends up there within two years. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I don't know, if we're going back into the, uh, the era of taking, t- taking drivers from different series and Formula E maybe now getting its first driver in Formula 1, who knows, maybe that Nick Cassidy into Formula 1 moment is finally <laughs> going to happen. But it's interesting, Sam, because Oscar Piastri, Nick De Vries have both left their junior programmes and have gone to teams affiliated with entirely different junior junior programs and it begs the question do you think because toto wolf was always very clear after with the whole piastri saga that you need to reward loyalty and drivers need to stay loyal to the people who got them into the seats well nick de Vries hasn't been exactly loyal to toto wolf going across to helmet marco and the red bull family do you think we're starting to see now that the junior setups that drivers aren't going to be as loyal when it comes to getting the precious few seats that exist in Formula 1. I think that's probably quite a sad reality, Cam, yes. I think ultimately these teams put a huge amount of money into developing these drivers and progressing them through their junior setups. So you would expect a modicum of loyalty when it comes to waiting for your chance to get a seat. But the way Formula 1 is, there's only 20 seats, obviously, and that means that when a seat does appear that appeals to you, I mean, of, of course you're going to gra- grab it. I mean, Piastri was in quite an unusual situation in that he had two seats available to him. But for De Vries, Alpha Tauri, 
was basically the perfect progression for him, as Joe was saying. And so, of course, he was going to grab that opportunity. He wasn't going to wait around for a Mercedes seat to come up, which he was never going to get anyway. And why would you go to Williams when AlphaTauri is available? So I think ultimately there's a very fine balance to be struck between being loyal to the team that progressed you and, and taking whatever chance comes up and that's a very hard balance for those drivers to strike mm, no exactly and joe coming to you now on the last bit of driver market news we um obviously one seat that we understand nick de Vries was set to go to was the williams seat um we understand for that uh Jos Capito said in austin that if logan Sargent gets enough super license points then he will be on the grid with Alex Albon next year. We've talked a bit about sort of Sargent in his kind of full debut season in F2, um, really performing very well, taking the opportunities. And whilst he's not going to obviously win in F2 this season, he has been for many the breakout star of the year. Um, Do you think, I I mean, I don't know whether he's F1 ready yet. I'm not 100% convinced. And I guess we'll only see it when he comes into Formula 1. But there's certainly a lot of potential there. And I would say for Williams, given where they were placed in the driver market, he seems to be the logical choice that they could afford. What's your thoughts on that? He's unquestionably rookie of the year in Formula 2, Ayumu Iwaza even considered. I just can't justify him getting an F1 seat when Felipe Drogovic and Teo Porcher cannot. I personally would have put him in a second year of F2 for seasoning. Can you win the series? I think he could. And in that case, you get an automatic spot. Maybe Williams would have lost him. We're not considering mm. if he'd been there for a second year. And I mean, who else would Williams have put the field. in the car? Well, I don't know, but another academy could have picked him up if Williams weren't immediately ready to put him in the car. So the question is, is there anyone better? And I, I would rather have kept Daniel Ricciardo on the grid than stick Logan Sargent in personally, but Ricardo wasn't interested in going to Williams. And if it means Nicholas Latifi is not on the starting grid for next year, it's something I am willing to take. And our first full-time American driver since, I believe, Scott Speed, almost 20 years ago. Yes, and if we all know how things ended for Scott Speed, Logan Sargent doesn't exactly have much of a barrier mm. to, uh, to climb. Just, just quickly picking up on that Daniel Ricardo point, I find that absolutely baffling how he's not going for either Haas or, or Williams because he seems to have this grand plan that he's going to have a sabbatical for a year and then appear in a team that's near the top of the grid. But looking at all those teams, there's not one that really will have a place available for him and not one that would really want to take him. So I'm not really sure what his plan is there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I just... there's the, the driver market, after how unsettled it's been this year going into this this year's silly season has been i can't see a seat ma- many changes happening certainly at the top so i i don't know maybe ricardo if he sees himself going into another series whether he whether this is the end of daniel ricardo in formula one because that second has seat i don't think he's going to go for it and i don't think has can afford it I mean, it has to have been very quiet about who they're putting in that seat. And, you know, they now know that they're the team that really have all of the cards. They have all the cards as to who they want to put in the seat. But out of every option they'd have had, Ricardo would have been the best driver to have put in that seat. He beat Mick Schumacher. He beat Giovinazzi. He would beat Latifi. I mean, 
I can't I can't see a better driver going into that that second Hassi. But all of the circumstances, financial, competitiveness, I I couldn't see Ricardo to be honest wanting to go there. And I and to be honest, if Ricardo falls off the grid this year, the way he's been driving the last couple of years, I you know I see him going into a Nico Hulkenberg kind of holding pattern, stepping in occasionally, but at the end of the day, that's all he's really destined to do. I don't know any of your thoughts, Sam, on that? I mean, it looks like Hulkenberg is going to take that mm. next Haas seat. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting because obviously Ricardo is obviously a huge personality and will have many options available to him outside the sport. But I think, I mean, he's he's claimed repeatedly that he's very set on staying in F1. That he, that's the only series that he'd be open to racing into and that he wants to race in. But I just can't see any opportunities that will open up for him in at least the next couple of years. No, absolutely. And Joe? Yeah, exactly. And if and if he goes into if he goes into a Sam puts it a Nico Hulkenberg if you put it rather, a Nico Hulkenberg holding pattern, well what's the long game? In four years' time you get a seat at Haas battling for eighth and the constructors? No. I, I if that if, if his goal is to get to a top team in the future I find it hard to justify a year off at his age. And the fact that he hasn't got anything lined up for next year, or even rumoured, even, because he doesn't want to do full-time IndyCar, I don't know where he goes forward from here. Yeah, maybe Daniel Ricciardo is just going to... Maybe he will become that cowboy that the Americans try to make him out. He'll have a ranch in Texas, and that, that is where Daniel Ricciardo's future is set. Although, the thought of Magnussen and Hulkenberg as teammates next year... We've talked about fireworks. I, I don't know if this is the ultimate winner of Silly Season is the fans for how many fireworks there'll be within teams and maybe Netflix as well for how much there. Then Can you imagine Kevin Magnussen, Nico Hulkenberg and Gunter Steiner in the same room? Netflix are going to be licking their lips and they are going to be holding that cash because it is it's an exciting prospect as much as I don't want a champion drive to survive because I don't like it. Anyway, I know Sam has to leave us now, but we have got one last section still to come. Thank you, Sam, for coming on today, by the way. Um, Me and Joe, of course, we're going to discuss the last few races, what we can expect from the end of 2022. Stick around more here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Okay, let's move on now to talking about the end of the season. And I say the end of the season, as I've said already, obviously, being here at City, it's very, very intense indeed. And so I'm, I can't make any promises as to when our next episode will be, only that there will be one within the next month. I will make that promise to you right here, right now. But we've got to look at the last three races. And I guess, Joe, we're at the stage now of the season where the ta- both championships are sewn up. It doesn't feel like a procession, but it's, it's a case where you feel you're just bringing the season to a nice, gentle close you might get some fireworks further down the grid, but we do have three races coming up in Mexico, Brazil, and Abu Dhabi. Three, I say three tracks that always guarantee excitement. Two tracks that guarantee excitement, and then Abu Dhabi to finish off the year. Um, is there anything you're particularly looking forward to in the last three races? Do you know, I mean, as you know, I've worked across a lot of podcasts this year, which I'm not going to plug, but 
I've genuinely been struggling in the last month or so to find stuff to talk about to do with F1, to find interesting mm. talking points until the end of the season. I suppose there's the battle between McLaren and Alpine for fourth in the constructors, although one of those is a works outfit and the other car can't handle straight lines. So, I mean, if Daniel Ricciardo keeps performing the way he has, I'd say Alpine have got that fairly comfortably sewn up. The only things that I've been doing over the last month or so have been slagging off Alpha Tauri and slagging off Alfa Romeo. Like a, a macro analysis of Alfa Romeo's season post Canada is absolutely shocking, Cam. Honestly, I, I know. The scale uh, uh, of their failure. And there was us talking about them as potentially as having the fourth fastest car at so yeah. many tracks earlier on. Do you on know this how year. many? Do you know how many points? Because I don't think Juan Yuzhou finished in the points in, in Cota. Do you know how many points they've scored since Canada? I'm thinking five. That's the number that comes into my head, but I have a feeling it's even less than that. One. Whew. Guan Yu Zhou finished 10th in Italy. That's wow. the only point they've scored since the Canadian Grand Prix. It is the fall of, I say the fall of Valtteri Bottas as well in terms of the points, but I remember he was the one behind the best of the rest ahead of Lando Norris and, Piet and uh, Esteban Ocon towards the start of the season. And he's just fallen down since then it's almost the the fact that Alfa Romeo have become so irrelevant to conversation just because of how far their car has fallen in the last few races but yeah it's one of those things you're trying to think of something to find in the last few races I mean let's start off with Mexico it's uh, obviously it's a track that divides opinion I'm not the biggest fan I think partly because they in my opinion ruined the peril tarder admittedly they kind of had no choice because there was a massive grandstand that got built in so they couldn't really do the peril tiles of justice but it's not the same track that it once was but it still does have a habit of throwing up some good races especially on the strategy front the altitude is always an interesting point it really does play with the tire wear at mexico it gives you a little bit i think it does allow for, for, for some strategic masterclasses if you can pull it off. I mean, is that, are you something you're looking forward to this weekend in Mexico? I, like you, am not a major fan of the circuit in no small part because of just how flat it is and there's just no banking to any corners whatsoever. I, I'd say I'm looking forward to it, but I don't think there's a track on the calendar that suits Red Bull as aggressively as the Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez does. High altitude, long straight lines, acceleration out of slow corners into straights. That's the RB18. If Red Bull don't get a 1-2 in Mexico, I will be staggered. Uh, the question is, though, now the season's finished, if Sergio Perez is ahead of Max Verstappen or in a position where he could win that race, do you think they'll allow him to win it? If he's ahead of Max, why not? Yeah. Or if he's just behind Max... And they're thinking, shall we keep get the home fans happy and get a Perez victory in 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 Mexico City? I just, I don't know. I feel there's a cynic in me that thinks it might be something in the last few races that might happen. If they desperately want him to finish ahead of Charles Leclerc in the drivers' championship, maybe. But I can't see them. I, would you want to tell Max Verstappen to move no, aside? No. Him? Uh, to be fair, I I don't think Max Verstappen has ever been on the other end of a team order in his whole career. And I think that that would it would be an interesting moment to see. But I don't know. I feel like if there is a battle there with Perez and Leclerc, and I think Red Bull will take great that it will, Red Bull will take great pride in beating Leclerc. I think partly because I think Leclerc not finishing second this year 
I wouldn't say I would say it's humiliating, given the outright pace of that Ferrari and the opportunities that Leclerc has had. So I think it's going to be an interesting one to see. Um, let's move on now, obviously, from Mexico to, I would say, my favourite track on the calendar, Interlagos. I absolutely love it. It's fan- just fantastic elevation changes, a real variety of corners as well on the track. It's one that always produces good racing. It's one that... It's always a fan favourite. The Brazilian fans are fantastic every year. It's one Lewis Hamilton has in the last years always done quite well at as well. I'm not saying that helps at all, but, you know, I have never seen a bad race at Interlagos. There's never a race at Interlagos where I've gone, this isn't, you know, this is boring at all. And the fact that this track, despite some of the issues it's had financially and in terms of its stability on the calendar, we've got Interlagos confirmed for the next few seasons. It's a fantastic track. It's one I say should always finish off the season rather than going off to Abu Dhabi. But it's going to be an exciting weekend as ever in Interlagos. I mean, just watch the race be a four out of ten after you've said (laughs) that. Oh, God. But it would be bold to assume it wouldn't be one of the better races of the season, at least, if not outright best. Um, And low-key, we actually haven't had a lot of incredible races this year. So Brazil might be a nice tonic after the post-Sunday break period, uh, past a uh, post-summer break period, which I actually think has been quite dull overall. Um, but yeah, obviously there's a lot to look forward to, but yet again, Cam, it's a Red Bull friendly track, long straights, acceleration, out of less explicitly than Mexico. But again, I, f- I find it hard to imagine anyone other than Verstappen winning that race. Did you see this? I don't know, the FIA just messing with us when they create the calendar every year, just making sure that it's a Red Bull stacked period towards the end of the season. Was this their their way of stopping Mercedes running and thinking, well, if it's close by the end of the season, we'll just give Red Bull every advantage we can? Well, last year, Mercedes had the fastest mm. car uh, quite comfortably for the last few rounds. And they well on super times but also just general performance on the tracks throughout so if that was the case it didn't work out very well <laughs> but um but yeah this year if they were trying to uh, maintain a championship challenge a lot of the tracks post summer break certainly haven't haven't led up to that and of course joe it's the return of your favorite the sprint race in Interlagos. Are you looking forward to that? move on move, <laughs> who cares it doesn't they don't do anything move well, on well there's going to be six of them next season a quarter of all the races next year will have sprint races i agree they haven't said where they're going to be doing them yet i don't see the well i always think you can have some weekends that you know maybe have some different things particularly with the points i can see the point of it i don't think it's an entirely useless gimmick you just have to deploy the gimmick well and you know interlagos you know lewis hamilton proved last year it's a track you can overtake on it's probably one of the better ones to do it on but you know, it, you don't want it to feel a bit, you don't want it to feel too gimmicky. I think that's the thing. And I know, will, will you be one round to sprint races the more you see of them next year? I look forward to thoroughly ignoring their existence six times a year rather than three. Sam Matthews Boma said it on the last podcast, I think. They, with the exception of Brazil last year, when have they changed anything? Never. No, very, very true. To be fair, it's one of those things where it's like they're just an add. They're just an add-on, but sometimes you don't always need that add-on. And I think it'll be interesting because we're getting into the point now where the gimmick of the the newness of sprint races is wearing off. So how long they stay on the calendar? That's going to be interesting. Because we move on to Brazil, 
Abu Dhabi to finish off the season. Um, well, there's no title fight in Abu Dhabi, so I don't think there's really much else that track warrants. The only thing to say about it is that I think Ferrari may have the quicker car on paper going into there, but by all accounts, it looks like the whole Scuderia Ferrari organization has moved on to next year and the years beyond. And the F175 hasn't really been developed since the midway point of the season, which makes complete sense. If you look at Ferrari's position in both the drivers and constructors, maybe there's a chance to end the season with some kind of difference. But again, Verstappen's form at that track is absolutely imperious. And Mm. while I'd say it marginally favors Ferrari, it's not like the RB18 is going to be victimized by the place. So Of the final three races, typically the last one is the one I care about by far the least. And I'm sure you agree. Yeah, particularly when there's no title fight to go there as well. It doesn't have the... I I only think Abu Dhabi is interesting when there's some kind of manufactured thing that makes the event itself exciting. A race in Abu Dhabi is never normally the most fun every season. It rarely is, to be fair. So... I think I get the sense if we're looking at these last three races, we're making predictions. I mean, are we going to safely say Max Verstappen's going to win all three of them? I think he'll win at least two of them. I couldn't tell you definitively which one he isn't going to win, but he will break the record for most wins in a season. I'm almost convinced he'll win Brazil. I'd say 80% chance he wins Brazil. Um, Abu Dhabi, Leclerc could give him a go, as could Sainz, actually. He's good at that track. Mexico, I like to think Perez has a chance, but again, last year, Max was a long way ahead of him. So I think at least two of the final three races Max takes. Yeah, so I, th- I think I'm just going to leave it now. Some quick fire questions to finish off and in terms of some of these battles that we have left. So firstly, second in the Drivers' Championship, Perez or Leclerc? I am going to say Leclerc. I th- What's the current gap? It is, I think, two points. Um, in Perez's favour. I'm going to say Perez. I th- yeah, I think it's just, it could easily be Perez, and obviously Red Bull favourites tracks, but I do think at the end of the day, Leclerc, if he can keep up his form in qualifying, he may not win the race, but I think if it means he finishes second most of the time, ahead of Verst- behind Verstappen, at the end of the day, he's ahead of Perez. But it's going to be a close one, and it's closer, I think, than it really probably should have been at the start of the year. Um, Let's move on fourth now in the Drivers' Championship. It's a close one between um, George Russell, who is currently on 218 points, Carlos Sainz on 202, Lewis Hamilton on 198. I'm going to say that order will be, I think, I think it will stay that way. Russell, Sainz, Hamilton. Joe? I think it's going to exactly flip Okay. Hamilton finishes fourth, signs fifth, Russell sixth. Why, why do you think that? I think that because although Carlos Sainz has had great performances post-summer break, he also takes so many penalties that, that he's almost never in a position to... Uh, grid penalties, that is, not um, infringement penalties. That he's just never in a position to get the kind of results that his pace warrants. Monza is a classic example of that. He could have won that race had he not had that grid penalty. As for Russell... Mistakes are creeping in. Hamilton is handily beating him in at least two out of three qualifying sessions. And Lewis, although he's far from his mid-season best, he tends to run well at these circuits. End of season, Lewis Hamilton. He's like Bayern Munich. He's always good towards <laughs> the end of the season. 
Um, yeah, I, I think it'll I think it'll flip on account of just how close it is. But again, it's not a slight on Russell if he finishes behind Lewis Hamilton in the drivers' championship. Yeah, I think it's uh, I th- I think you know considering how the fact that Russell's been ahead for most of the year, I think that's a pretty good part on him. Um, I guess one more question. I need to ask you, I think we can assume Ferrari will finish ahead of Mercedes. There's an 11-point gap between Alpine and McLaren. I'm going Alpine for fourth in the Constructors, Joe. I'm going Alpine just because of how straight-line dependent Mexico and Brazil are. However, this is pending Alpine reliability. And <laughs> we know what a that's meme like. For, it's a meme for good reason. <laughs> All I will say, if McLaren finish fourth in the Constructors' Championship this year... I on, I honestly don't know how they can reward Lando Norris anymore, because he is he will literally be the sole reason they're there. He's he's almost got four. I think he may have actually gone beyond this point now. Four times the points of Daniel Ricciardo going into the summer break. I think it was exactly four times the yeah, points. Yeah, it's twenty nine, I believe, to one hundred and nine. Okay, so not quite that but level. Nearly but again, there. it's 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 in that kind of proportion, and it has been for a lot of the season. They're basically a one-man team and they're battling for fourth without a works package. That I keep saying it with McLaren, in a way, as, as a team, not necessarily as a constructor, this might be one of their most impressive seasons of the last decade, especially considering they've only really had one competitive car. And I guess the question that comes from that, imagine if they had Piastri in the car, in the car this year. If he was, if he was halfway... If he, if he was half as far behind Norris as Ricardo has been, that's an extra 20 points mm. minimum. And actually, no, a lot more than that, realistically. Well, exciting stuff, I think, to look forward to in the future. Well, Joe, as ever, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you as well for tuning in. I hope you've liked the change of sound. Hopefully we'll be able to bring you a few more of these from studios here at City University throughout the year. But in the meantime, as ever, like and follow the podcast across social media at Armchair F1 Pod. Listen to us across all major streaming platforms. I've been Cam Hall. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 